Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. All right, let's dive into our teaching this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I just want to begin by reading this text to set the tone for where we're heading in our teaching this morning. 1, verse 8 says this, but you will receive what? Power. Oh, come on. We got to say that with some power. You will receive power. There we go. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, offering them some final thoughts before he ascends into heaven. This is his commission. This is what he, like he has one thing left to say. And if you're a disciple in this moment and you know Jesus is about to leave you, you know what he's about to say here is pretty darn important. You'd be listening in and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Last year, Josh, our youth pastor, and I got really into running. Uh, we obviously have not been doing that lately, but we got really into running last year. And uh, we would run a lot on Kent Trail starting in Byron Center. So we'd park in Byron Center and then we'd go run north on Kent Trail. And I don't mean to brag, but we were really fast. We passed a lot of people. And when I say we passed a lot of people, I mean the only people we passed were the people coming towards us. <laughs> that was it. And there was this one guy coming towards us that was a little bit different than all the other runners we saw. In fact, both of us were like, that's weird. We could see him in the distance, and he started getting closer and closer. And we noticed something really strange about this particular guy. He was running fully dressed in his work clothes from head to foot. I mean, we're talking dress shoes, dress slacks, a button-down shirt drenched in sweat. This guy is running towards us, and we're like, what the heck is he doing? He is so out of his element right now. And part of me was like, man, this is, this is really weird, right? I look at dress shoes, and my feet just start to hurt by looking at them. I can't imagine running in dress shoes. And yet this guy was so committed, his entire work outfit drenched in sweat. And here's the craziest part. This was a morning run, so he was still heading to work after that. I would not want to be his coworker sitting right next to him. We'll assume he showered and he changed and everything. But it was so crazy how he was out of his element. And all of us know in one way or another what it feels like to be out of our element, don't we? Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a, a new town a new house. We all know what it feels like to be out of our element. In some ways, being out of our element, it's really, really exciting. But in other ways, it can be very disorienting. It can be very frustrating. But I also saw this guy, and I had a strange level of respect for him. Like this guy, he's really committed to what he's doing right now. He, he's really committed to getting out there and moving his body and getting out of his element to get some exercise in. 
How many of us have ever willingly left our element in search of something better, in search of something new? You know, Jesus, he says these final words to his disciples, and essentially what he is asking them to do is he's asking them, are you willing to leave your element for my sake? You see, Jerusalem was their element. It was their Wayland or Otsego or wherever you might live. It was their home base. Jerusalem was their element. And when he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, not just in your home base, but you will be my witnesses in enemy territory, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so what he tells them to do is he tells them to go to Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and fall upon them. And it's on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after this, that the Holy Spirit comes in power on his church. And it's funny because I was was writing this sermon not even realizing that today was actually Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day in the church calendar where we celebrate the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst and in the church. And one of the biggest things that I notice happening throughout the whole book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit is constantly compelling Christians to get out of their element, to go to the places where no one else will go, to go to the people that they may not like. We talked about this last week, right? Jesus went into Samaria that wasn't normal. His very commission to his church, the very work of the Holy Spirit was to get the church out of their element for the sake of the gospel, out of their religious element, out of our political element, out of our cultural element, our racial element. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And the church experiences power in radical, radical ways as a result. But there's just one problem. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, the church stays concentrated in Jerusalem. They stay concentrated in their home base. There's incredible things happening in Jerusalem, but they are stuck in their home base. They're in their element. They're not out of their element. And what ends up happening is a great persecution comes upon the church in Jerusalem. And I want you to watch what happens all in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 here. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Watch what happens next. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you see this persecution starting to come upon the church. And what it does is it compels the church to move outside of their element, to go to the places other people don't want to go, to reach people that other people don't want to reach. The church is compelled by the Holy Spirit to leave their element. And here's what we start seeing all in the book of Acts. They start spreading. They go to Judea. They go to Samaria. A Samaritan sorcerer is converted in Acts chapter 8. We're not going to look at that today. But they start moving out, and the Spirit starts stirring the pot. And there's this one guy who I believe is one of the heroes of the book of Acts named Philip. Philip has a phenomenally powerful story of the Holy Spirit. And this isn't the same Philip that was a disciple of Jesus. This is a guy we call Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist is compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to these places, to move out of his element, to go to people that other people don't want to reach, 
for the sake of the gospel. I want you to take a look at his story with me in verse 26 here. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all of her treasure. So Philip is a Jewish man. And he is compelled by the Holy Spirit to go reach this Ethiopian eunuch with the gospel. Now, we talked last week about how drastically dramatic it was that Jesus went into Samaria, into enemy territory. And this cultural and political and racial division is equally as dramatic. You see, Philip, as a Jewish man in Jewish culture, would have woken up almost daily and prayed to himself this prayer. God, thank you for not making me a woman, (laughs) a slave, or a Gentile. This was the prayer of Jewish men in the morning. God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And so when the Spirit compels Philip to go reach this Ethiopian eunuch, you have this man who is racially different than Philip, culturally different than Philip, sexually different than Philip. I mean, everything about this Ethiopian eunuch, he is a black man living in Africa who has been castrated for service to the queen. And this was pretty typical for his region of the world. I don't know why they did this. Maybe it was to keep them from getting distracted or something. But if you were a high court official in the Ethiopian region, you would have to become a eunuch in order to serve kind of the royalty there. It was a very prestigious position in his culture and in his time. And God's message to Philip is this, that Jesus is going to compel you to get out of your element for the sake of people. He's going to compel you to get out of your element for the sake of people. Church, I want to ask you, when was the last time that Jesus compelled you to get out of your cultural, racial, political, whatever barrier you want to talk about? When was the last time the Spirit of Jesus compelled you to get out of your element for the sake of the gospel. You see, far too often I hear Christians in the church say that race is a distraction from the gospel. And what we see the Holy Spirit doing is the Holy Spirit sees comfortable Christians and he compels them to reach across those barriers, not for the sake of being woke, it's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel being spread and the church expanding. And so Philip, he's moved by the Spirit to do just this. And I want you to watch what the eunuch is doing as Philip is compelled here. Verse 27, and Philip arose and went. Uh, Actually, 27b here. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So this eunuch is returning from Jerusalem, okay? And here's the craziest part about him being in Jerusalem. He was there to most likely worship at the temple. He had traveled about 1,500 miles to make this happen. And upon arriving at the temple, he would have had to participate in a ritual cleansing baptism so that he could go worship in this holy place. 
there's just one problem with this scenario. Ancient Jewish texts forbid eunuchs from entering this holy place. Deuteronomy 23, several other holy Jewish texts said eunuchs are not allowed to enter this holy place. So this eunuch would have been denied baptism. He would have been denied access to encounter God. He would have been denied and excluded from God's presence. Now, if you're like me, I was reading this text, and the first question that popped into my mind is, how would they know? <laughs> right? Anybody else thinking that? How would they know at the temple? Like, did he need a vaccine passport to get in or something? Like, sorry, not going there. How would, he, how would they know? There's two reasons they would have known at the temple. The first one is his race. They would have seen an Ethiopian man, and immediately they would have thought to themselves, eunuchs live in Ethiopia. This was a region very well known for producing eunuchs, <laughs> to say it nicely. But then the other way they would have known, and this one really kind of blew my mind, is that when you have a man who has not produced testosterone for the majority of his life, it would have been very, very physically apparent that he was a eunuch. It would have been all over his body. And so when he seeks to enter the temple, he is shut out by the religious system of his day because he didn't measure up to their standards. Church, I got to ask a question. When we look at stories like this, do we find ourselves looking more like Philip, filled with the Spirit, running after people? Or do we look more like temple guards standing watch, deciding who is in and who is out? When I look at the church today, do, do I, me personally, I'm making this personal, not just about us, but about me too. Do I look more like Philip, filled with the Spirit, running after people? Or do I look more like temple guards in Jerusalem, deciding who is in and who is out? There was a Barna research study that was done that polled people in the United States very recently, and they asked, they asked people, what, what do you think of when you think of Christian, when you think of the church, evangelicals? What, what words come to mind? And the top three words that consistently came to mind for people was anti-gay, judgmental, and hypocritical. That's probably surprising to approximately nobody sitting in here. Right? I, I wasn't surprised by that. I mean, that is, that is the language we hear of the church today. And yet, as, as I think about this, and as I, I've, I've done learning in this area, so many Christians kind of pit this idea of, well, I want to have good theology, but I also want to love people really well. And we kind of treat these things as enemies of each other. And the lie that we've bought into, especially when it comes to the LGBT community, is that churches have to change their theology to be a welcoming place for LGBT people. That's what a lot of, I think, people believe. Well, there was a, a survey done, and this just shocked me. A survey done of thousands of LGBT people who had left the church. And they asked them a few different questions, and this is what they found out. Number one, they found out that only 3% of LGBT people left their church because of their theology or their beliefs about marriage. 
only 3%. In fact, the vast majority of people left because of the church's posture, because it wasn't a place where they could experience love and belonging and community, where they couldn't struggle through things. This next one, of that same group, 76% of LGBT people would be open to returning to the church if some things changed. Now, some of us are wondering, oh, what are those things that need to change? This is what they said. Only 8% of them said the church's theology needs to change, which means 92% of these thousands of LGBT people, and this is only a couple years old, this is a recent study, 92% of them said things like the church's posture needs to change. I need a place where I can struggle openly. I need a place where I can come and not have all the answers and wrestle alongside other people. I need a community that's welcoming to me, but it has very little to do with what the theology of that community is. It has everything to do with posture. Now, of course, all of us know exceptions to this, and the media would like you to believe that the the vast majority are exceptions to these, but this is a pretty widely done study that's, that's fairly recent. And what that makes me think through is that as a a church, I think we can do a better job of being Phillips in the world that are running after people. I think we can do a better job at that. I think I can do a better job at that. Too often we act as though good theology and radical love are somehow opposite ends of the spectrum. And I want to remind you that we have a savior named Jesus who said radical love is good theology. Love God and love people is how he boiled down the law. Radical love is a willingness to get out of our element for the sake of other people. It's a willingness to leave what is comfortable, leave what is known for the sake of reaching people. So I want to continue reading here in the text in verse 29. And the spirit, again, here's the spirit moving, said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, this is a pretty ridiculous scene, if you think about it, because this chariot is moving, and here you have this guy, Philip the Evangelist, running alongside this chariot, probably in his full work clothes, drenched in sweat, right? So he's running aside this chariot. He's like, what are you, what are you reading there? Like, try, like, it's just kind of a ridiculous scene, if you think about it. And this Ethiopian eunuch, this African eunuch, who had wealth and status who had traveled 1,500 miles only to be rejected at a temple, is reading the prophet Isaiah. The text shows us that he's reading from Isaiah 53 specifically. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. Why would he be reading this prophet? Because he's reading about this promise to the people of Israel and ultimately to the world that there would come a suffering servant who would be cut off from his own people. In fact, in this very text that the eunuch is reading, as he continues to read, he would read in the book of Isaiah that there was a certain group of people because of this Messiah who would be given a name in God's family better than son and daughter. You know who that group of people is? Eunuchs. 
This Ethiopian eunuch who had been rejected by the Jewish religious establishment would be reading that because of this Messiah, because of this suffering servant, that eunuchs themselves, people who had been rejected from a religious system would be given a name better than family in God's kingdom. See, if I'm the Ethiopian eunuch, my vision of who God is would have been completely flipped on its head upon reading this. And then you have this crazy runner next to you, running alongside you, saying, hey, like, I can help you understand that. I can help you explain it. Church, there is never a person that you will encounter on this planet that does not have a deep longing for the stuff of the kingdom of God. They may not know it. They may not be able to name it but you will never encounter a person who doesn't have innately in them a deep longing for this kingdom. That's what the eunuch is searching out. And in the midst of his rejection, in the midst of his own inadequacy, he encounters Philip. See, this gospel casts a very wide, very inclusive net. In the book of Acts alone, we see it's available to sorcerers from Samaria, to Ethiopian eunuchs, to people who rejected Jesus, to Pharisees who have blood on their hands. This gospel casts an extremely inclusive and wide net. Everyone is welcome. Everyone. By everyone, we mean everyone is welcome. But don't miss this. This is where it shifts a little bit. This extremely inclusive posture that says everyone is welcome has a ridiculously exclusive message. See, what Philip does is he says everyone is welcome. Ethiopian eunuchs, Samaritan sorcerers. But where it gets exclusive is he says it is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it in the religious system anymore. You're not going to find it from trying harder. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find the stuff of the kingdom of God that can meet your deepest longings in a job, in security, anywhere else. You are going to find it in the person of Jesus alone. See, I think sometimes we as a church get this mixed up. Philip pursues the Ethiopian eunuch with a radically inclusive posture, but a ridiculously exclusive message, right? It starts wide and gets very narrow. It is the person of Jesus. Sometimes what I think we do in the church is we have a ridiculously exclusive posture. And others of us, I think, have a ridiculously or inclusive message. And I want you to hear that. Don't flip those things around ridiculously inclusive posture. Everyone is welcome, but we are unapologetically Jesus people because we believe he is the only one who has the power to unite people. That's why he stirs us out of our element. That's why he stirs Philip out of his element. In fact, watch how the story ends here. This is just beautiful. Verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you does the prophet say this? about himself or about someone else, referencing Isaiah. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice how Philip meets the eunuch exactly where he's at. He's already reading this Scripture, and Philip starts there, and he uses that to tell him the good news about Jesus Christ. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Whew. This man who was just denied baptism in the temple is now a brother of Philip because of the person of Jesus. This is what Jesus does, that the spirit of Jesus compels us to get out of our element, to go to people that we might not normally talk to, to be weird in this world, to look different than the rest of the world, to go to the people, to go to the places that are difficult and that are challenging. You see, when Jesus gave his disciples this commission... It was very common in the ancient world when a new king is instated to go to every corner of that kingdom to declare a new king is here. When Caesar, there's a new Caesar in Rome, you would go to the far reaches of the Roman Empire to declare a new king is on the throne. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here in Acts 1-8 and in Acts 8 you are going to go to the furthest reaches of my kingdom and declare that I am on the throne. You see, it's in Acts 8 alone where we see the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the Ethiopia. Do you want to know what Jewish people call Ethiopia? The ends of the earth. The uttermost. Within one chapter alone, we see people leave their element over and over and over again for the sake of the gospel. Are you letting the Spirit move you out of your element to declare that Jesus is transforming things in this world? That he is bringing the kingdoms of this earth under his rule and his reign. That heaven, the realm of heaven, is coming to earth right now. See, we believe this eunuch took this gospel message and church tradition tells us that he became a missionary to his people in Ethiopia and the gospel was spread because of this. This is why we let the spirit stir us out of our element. To get uncomfortable to go to places and people that our culture is telling us we should not be going to, to engage in difficult and sometimes awkward conversations with people because that's what happens when the spirit moves. He stirs things, he agitates things, he moves us out of our element. See, friends, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to take you on an adventure. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to take us on an adventure. I believe following Jesus is the best life possible. He wants to stir you. He wants to move you out of what, what is comfortable. He wants to light your soul on fire for people. He wants to see this burning passion that cannot be extinguished, that, that when he says go, you go. When he says move, you move, regardless of where it takes you, regardless of who it takes you to. For some, he wants to take your family out of their element for the sake of this kingdom. You know one of the most powerful things families can do is serve together? Doesn't matter where. Like we have families serving in our renovation space over there. It is a beautiful thing to see mothers and daughters and sons and fathers serving alongside each other. That is a huge kingdom thing, and that is not normal to see in our society. 
Go find a mission in Wayland or in the community you live in. Like, go serve with your family somewhere. That's one of the most powerful ways that you can be stirred out of your element for the kingdom of God in your family. For others, he is laying someone on your heart who lives right next door that you don't particularly like. And so for you, moving out of your element means going to the house next door <laughs> with like cringe, right? Like, but that's, I mean, that's what the spirit does. For others of us, he's stirring us to see his kingdom as so much bigger than just the town and the community that you may live in. One of the things that God has really been laying on my heart this, this past year is that new life needs to be a place where global missions is happening. That isn't something that we've talked about a ton around here. We've been very focused locally, as I think we should have been over these last couple of years. But God's really been stirring my heart as a pastor to begin praying about where he might be calling us globally. And there's one common argument against that. Well, why would we go there when we have so much work to do here? Because the kingdom of God doesn't belong to any one group of people. It doesn't belong to any one culture. And by going there, you get to see a different side of the kingdom of God that actually strengthens your faith in how you live here. I remember a couple years ago going to Haiti. And uh, Haiti was one of the most transformative things I've ever participated in as a Christian. And immediately when I go to Haiti, people in America ask, well, what did you build for them? Or what did you do for them? And my answer to that is nothing. We built relationships. We actually learned what it means to follow Jesus from Haitian Christians. I remember one guy that I sat down with, his name was Mark. He was a pastor. Mark was being trained up to be a pastor. He was helping other pastors. And Mark explained to me how in Haiti, they have three hour long prayer meetings every single day and they cannot keep their communities away. That in Haiti, in these little towns, there is a revival happening. They'll break guitar strings, something that would derail our worship, and it just fuels them all the more. See, I need to get out of my element as a Christ follower and see that kind of faith because it impacts mine. I remember sitting with a guy named Tony in Haiti who's a missionary from Canada. He didn't even know Haitians didn't speak Spanish. He just arrived there and was like, oh, it's Creole. And, and this guy, Tony, felt called to the mountain villages where voodoo was happening all over the place, it's where most of Haitians live. And I'll never forget the story that he told us. He had witnessed firsthand kids that he loved being sacrificed in the name of voodoo. And he walked into these villages, and what he saw was a people who desperately needed Jesus. And what it did in him is he said, I need that same Jesus just as badly. See, getting out of our element stirs some things in our hearts. Another story I heard in Haiti was the story of Gladys and Henri, a Haitian couple who left everything behind in search of a new land to raise up kids that had been orphaned in Haiti. And they started this discipleship school for them. And I got to meet some of these kids, and they are on fire fire for Jesus, all because two people left what they knew, got out of their element to go start a school that trains up young Haitian kids. Leaving here to go somewhere else, getting out of our element for the gospel, it doesn't mean you neglect here 
What it means is it informs how you live here. It informs how you engage your neighbors. It informs how you engage your family members. Getting out of my element transforms exactly how I live in my element. And so within this next year, I believe God is going to call our church to some kind of global mission. I don't know what that is at the moment, but my invitation for you today is to just go on a journey of prayer with us over this. That's where we're going to start. I don't have all the answers, but I know that some of us, myself included, can start today getting out of our element. And I believe that's what God is calling us to do. And so will you join me in this next year of just praying about how God is stirring us to leave and get out of our element a little bit more? Wayland is our Jerusalem. And there is a Judea and there is a Samaria and there is an ends of the earth that God calls us to as well. And so we're going we're gonna to end this series today with communion. Because communion is one of the most powerful things we can do to remember the God who left his element for us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says that every time you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you are declaring the Lord's death until he comes. You are declaring the fact that God got out of his element for you. And so we have a few different stations here, uh, one there and then two in the back there. And during this last song, I want to invite you as a family to get up, to partake in the elements, and to just seek the Lord. Paul says, examine yourself when you come to this table. To take a look and say, God, where are you calling me to get out of my element? Where are you calling me to grow in love for people? Because that's what it's all about. Let me offer a prayer and then we're going to respond in worship this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you got out of your element for our sake. That you left the glories and the majesty of heaven and what it meant to be equal with God and you made yourself a servant. You became human. A human that met with women at wells and Pharisees at night a human that told stories of the kingdom looking like a father that runs for his lost son when he comes home. That you handed your baton on to the next generation, God, for us to carry, for us to get out of our element too. God, may we not drop that, may we not take that lightly, but may we be filled to overflowing, <laughs> overflowing with your spirit, your power, and may your spirit lead us to the places that we don't want to go. And in that, God, may our faith be transformed. May we see our desperate need for you in our everyday stuff of life. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Everyone said, Amen.